Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you your adventures, books, and conversations, your ABCs from 11,000 feet. I'm Stacy, and with me, we have... <laughs> it's Christopher, co-host Christopher. Co-host Christopher, and of course, as always, producer Doug. Good morning, Doug. Hey, Doug. Ho, 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 ho. <laughs> <laughs> Doug is obviously in the holiday spirit or he's had too much coffee. So <laughs> that's both. How's so, it going? Good. How are you guys? We're Doing good. great. We're good. We're, we're, we're waking up laughing on a Friday. So yeah. there you go. It's a yeah, good. Yeah, that's good. It's been kind of a rushed morning, but it's, it's good. It's good. And we are so happy today to have Dave Leonard from the Bookie Joint joining us. Welcome, Dave. Hey, Dave. Hi, Christopher. Hi, Stacy and Doug. How are you? We're good. We're glad to have good. you back for year two of our annual Books in Review episode. I'm yes. so excited for this. I, I love this time of year when people put out their best of list, and I'm glad that we get to do part of it. Yeah, did you I think Obama just put out his best of he's got all these best of. He's got a playlist, he's got a book list. He's 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 into the best of. <laughs> Dave does Bookie Joint put out a best of? Um we will be after this. I think I'll, I'll do one shelf for for each of them. I think it's um, <laughs> There we go. Oh yeah. good. Are you going to do a, an oxygen starved shelf? Yes. Yes. Well, we we could put Yay. three of them. So um, yes. Yeah, so we'll <laughs> yeah. It'll be the 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 latest thing here. Oh, that that'll be that would be so fun. That's one of my favorite things about going into a bookstore, especially indie bookstores, is the staff picks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we, Bookie we try Joint to... always has a really. You always have a really good featured staff list. Yeah, and we have. Um, Customer picks too, so customers can come in and <clears throat> excuse me, write um, write their favorite little uh, blurb on on their favorite books. So you're welcome to do that too. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's okay. fun. But we so should that, have we should have an oxygen starved. No pressure, Dave. <laughs> no, no, no. Something to think about. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I think <laughs> I, okay. I totally totally agree with you. Um, but let, let's put the owner of the bookie joint in Mammoth on the spot on yeah, the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, before we get into our top picks, why don't you tell our listeners who might not be familiar with bookie joint a little bit about the store? Um, well, uh, bookie joint is one of the uh, longest running um, stores in Mammoth. It's been here since 1978. Um, and I have owned it for the last 15 years. Um, and it's changed a little bit over over the years. So we, um, but it's always sold a lot of different things. It's you know obviously primar- primarily a bookstore, um, but we we sell all all kinds of things. So you know art supplies, jigsaw puzzles, um, toys, Legos, 
um, magazines, all sorts of things. So, um, yes, awesome. that's us. It's one of it's it's my favorite store in Mammoth. Me too. Me too. Bird. Well, and thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, and I hear that all the time. People come in and. Um, they, you know, they have this nostalgia that they have to come back and, you know, just this week I've had several people that, you know, only remember it from, you know, 20 years ago when, Mm -hmm. you know, it just had DVDs and where are the DVDs? Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, where, where are the LPs? (laughs) Where are the LPs? That's, we're Uh, showing our age. They, they are coming back. Um, yeah. So are I, they? Yeah. 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 I think they are. Yeah. All right. Not, I, not DVDs so much, but LPs. No. No. VHS. So, Dave, this has been a pretty interesting year for retail in a pandemic. How's how's that been going for you? How's business been going? Um, I think we've we've been luckier than a lot of places um, because we sell a lot of stuff that people. We're looking for in the pandemic, um, you know, art supplies, jigsaw puzzles, books, even, um, you know, to, to keep <laughs> themselves <laughs> um, busy, you know, occupied when they're, when they're at home. Um, and we have some, you know, very loyal customers who um, would contact me and, um, you know, we, we would do the curbside pickup and I drop off books with people, you know, just to do the rounds around town. Um, so yeah, it was, it was nice. We were, we were able to, even when we were closed, I was able to still sell things. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, it was was nice to see people would get in, um, send me emails and I would send, send books, mail books to people. Cause a lot of, a lot of people that like to shop here are from, um, other places. So, Right. And then, you know, and then since being, uh, being open again, we, we were actually busier than ever in July and August was crazy. Um, you, you may wow. have no- wow. noticed in town, it was, it was yeah. by far the busiest July. And, yeah. Um, but then, then of course we had that, um, smoke, um, <laughs> which mm-hmm. just <laughs> absolutely killed everything again. So um, and now everything's yeah. shutting down again. So we'll, we'll kind of see what, uh, what Christmas brings. It's, you know, it's just one of those up and down years. And hopefully we have light at the end of the tunnel and we just have to hold on a little bit longer. And I think, I think it'll be very, very busy next year as people um, are able to travel more. I think it'll be a very busy mm-hmm. summer. So, you know, we just have to kind of hang on. And, you know, I try to support as many local businesses as possible, um, especially restaurants now that they're shutting down and, uh, you know, get takeout and things like that. So, you know, we're all all in this together. So we'll we'll get through. We certainly are. And we'll help people getting through because we're going to about to talk about 15 really great books that they can either buy as gifts or maybe buy for themselves. So um, maybe this will help tide some people over until things open up some more. Stacy, so. I'm up first. 
ladies first. Oh God, the pressure. Okay. (laughs) To, to have books or to be a lady? Uh, well, we can talk about that off the the recording. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for letting me go first. Um, so my, I have some, I have a little nonfiction. I have some palate cleansers. So I'm, and some like more meaty books. So I'm going to start with my nonfiction book, which is called Imperfect Union, How John and Jesse Fremont Mapped the West, Invented Celebrity, and Helped Cause the Civil War. And it's written by Steve Inskeep, which if you are an NPR listener, you will know Steve Inskeep is one of the reporters, regular hosts of NPR. He frequently hosts the Up First podcast, which I listen to almost every day. And he he writes, I have to say, he writes just like he speaks. Comforting. So as you're reading this book, you can hear him. I mean, for me, talk about voices in your head. So I can hear Steve Inskeep like narrating. So it's, 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 that's kind of fun for me. So John Fremont is kind of the most famous historical U.S. figure you've never heard of. Right. So his, his, <laughs> there are like a ton of towns and bridges and, and monuments and things um, tr- attributed to John Fremont all across the United States and particularly in the West, because he did so much exploring um, following the, um, you know, when we had westward expansion, it was him who did quite a bit of that exploration and, the, for those of you who listened to our interview with um, with the colonel from Kevin Hutchinson from last year, he is a big fan of John Fremont, and I think he was reading one of, a book about him when we interviewed him last year. So we can look that up and put a link. Yeah. So this book takes place over the years 1841 to 1856. It focuses on that time period. And right at the outset of the book um, is when John Fremont marries Jesse. And she's a lot younger than he is, but she's very politically savvy because her father was a a congressman. So, you know, they live in DC. She's very well connected. And and she's quite ahead of her time. So she kind of takes on the role of his like press secretary. And um, so they get married. They spend enough time together that she gets pregnant and then he leaves for like three years (laughs) and goes off. Well, not three years, but he leaves for a really long time and goes off on this expedition. And when he comes back, she transcribes his notes all along his journey, and you can imagine back then, it took quite a while for even letters to come back. And, you know, he's off in the wilderness with a band of people. So she didn't even get very good correspondence from him. But she would kind of like make things up and leak them to the press. So he would get all these accolades, right? So, um, you know, there's it kind of goes back and forth between him and his journeys and his adventures out, you know, out in the West and then her, her experience at home. 
Right. And so, you know, it says that the title indicates that they invented celebrity. And I, I'm not sure that that really is explored. I didn't really think that was explored that much in the book. Um, okay. Nor really was their influence in how they started the Civil War. <laughs> um, it really, really, the main focus was the idea of, you know, his adventures and his experiences out there and how she would react to them back home. And um, they definitely were the first couple to understand how to manipulate the press. Um, And they did, and they did a really good job of it. And it just was a great um, account of that period in history. And certainly I didn't know so much about, you know, that time period or his exploration, um, of the West. And that, that was really interesting to hear about his company going out after the Donner party, mm-hmm. kind of tracing their steps and, um, you know, the things that they found on the way and hearing about, um, you know, how he, how they came across like the great salt Lake and they were like, what is this? salty we shouldn't drink this water you know it was just um it was a really interesting fun fun read and you know it was a book definitely that you could pick up read a chapter read a few pages put it down and come back to it you know you didn't it didn't require you to read all the way through you know in one sitting Mm -hmm. so so that's my nonfiction book um stacy and yeah just yes. to, if, if you're interested in, in that period and um, John Fremont, there's a really good book called Blood and Thunder by Hampton Sides, which goes into into that quite a bit too. Um, I haven't read this one. Oh, good. Def- definitely read it. That's I, lo- I love Stevensky too. He's great. Yeah, he's so he's so good, and he really. I mean, this is my God. This is so thoroughly researched. And, you know, I, it's difficult to research a period of time where you just, there aren't that many artifacts, you know, there isn't that much, um, out there. So you really have to dig and, um, yeah, Yeah, the politics of the time and, you know, they interact with Frederick Douglass and it's just, it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading this book too. And, and thank you for bringing up Blood and Thunder, Dave. That's actually the book that Colonel Hutchinson recommended, um, that he was reading. Right. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's really it's getting a lot of attention. It's really good. Yeah. And Colonel Hutchinson talked to us about a, an incident with a cannon, right? You so up by Pickle Meadows, there's supposedly a lost cannon. Right. And that's John Fremont's group's cannon. And they talk about, I was so excited when I read that part in the book where they talk about how that happened. I'm not going to give it away. <laughs> I was I was like, oh my gosh, I know about that. It was really, it was fun. All right, Great. so moving on. So my next two books are have similar themes. And um I'll start with Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. And Christopher and I talked about this on the podcast uh several episodes ago. Such a fun book. Such a fun book. And this was my favorite. This gets my number, this is my favorite book of the year. My very favorite, number one. I should have saved it for the end, but I wanted to group them. So 
basically this this book is uh, uh, Kylie Reed. I should say is a first time author. This is a fir- her first published novel, and it kind of discusses this idea of woke racism. You know, if you remember earlier on in the year when we were having all these riots and trouble and issues uh, that dealt with race in our country, you heard a lot about people becoming woke to to racism. And um, so this novel kind of explores that a little bit. And basically, the novel starts out with Amira, who is a an an African-American woman, young woman in her 20s, and she babysits for an upper-middle-class white family. She gets called away by this family late on a Saturday night to come over because there's been an incident at their house, and Alix, the mom, wants Amira to take their little girl, Briar, and get her out of the house so they could deal with this situation. And Amira acquiesces she leaves a party goes to the house picks up the little girl and takes her to a very kind of she she you know whole foods like grocery store and at that grocery store a security guard and it's not even like a policeman he's just like a paid security guard accuses Amira of kidnapping Briar and it causes this whole scene and somebody uh, a gentleman who's watching, he films it, um, and and so then the the that kind of kicks off the plot of of the book, and it's just it's so fascinating to watch these characters um, and see how they develop during during the story, and um, it's it's just it's a really really fun interesting book to read. Um, you know, to read about racism that's coming from people who don't consider themselves racist, like Alix, you know, she is obsessed with Amira and she wants, she more than anything else, it's like, this is her top priority is to become friends with Amira over the fact that she's concerned about what kind of care Amira gives to her daughter, which, you know, her, her daughter and Amira have this amazing relationship and Amira almost loves this little girl more than the mother does. Um, and then Amira develops a relationship with Kelly, who is the gentleman who filmed the whole episode in the grocery store. And he's a, he's a white man. And so there, the interplay of their relationship and, you know, how, how his friends accept or don't accept Amira and how her friends accept or don't accept Kelly. Um, you know, that's another plot line and it's just, um, it's, it's things that you can, you know, these people are people that you know, and you could tell that these were, these characters at least were archetypes that Kylie Reed was very familiar with. And she herself had been a nanny so, you know, this, this comes from a, a real place for her. And I don't yeah. want to say too much more without giving away the plot, but we loved it, didn't we? We did. We talked about it on the podcast before. Yeah. The only thing I'll add to it is it's very cleverly written. And mm-hmm. it is 
thought-provoking key point throughout the book. It's a great book discussion title. And I think it's kind of like a good fiction counterpoint to um, D'Angelo's White Fragility, which a lot of people were reading over the summer as well. Yeah, and reading at the same time. They both both came out around the same time. So so my next book is similar. Um, It deals with, with race issues as well in a very different way. So this is called The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. And it made a lot of top 10, you know, it made a lot of bestseller, you know, bestseller lists, top 10 books. It was, it was on the list for consideration for a national book award. And this tells the story of twin sisters, the Vignet sisters. And they grew up in a town called Mallard, Louisiana which is a very small town and it is inhabited by African-American people with very light skinned universally in the town. That's what they all look the same. And these twins grow up. It takes place over several generations and these twins grow up. And as soon as they can, they bail, they get out of town. They go to new Orleans and eventually they split up and one marries an an African American man who's very dark skinned. The other goes to California and well, she gets married to a white man and they move to California and she lives her life as a white person. And, um, how they all navigate this is just amazing. And then they each have each sister has a daughter so Jude is the daughter of Desiree, who married who had married the the dark skinned African American man, and she's very dark skinned. Whereas um, Stella, the other twin, has a daughter named Kennedy, who who thinks she's white. So she grows up; she doesn't know any difference. She doesn't know anything about her mother's background. And then eventually, the two daughters meet each other. And become friends, well, not friends, but they they kind of meet each other and develop a relationship, which ends up bringing the sisters back together. But, you know, again, you're dealing with different cultures, you're dealing with time, you know, different generations. And um, it's fascinating to watch these characters navigate the whole race idea and yet they're still family. And it was, I really enjoyed it. It was really good. It does bounce back and forth between narrators. And so you, you kind of have to stick with this a little bit. (laughs) Dave, are you seeing people, I mean, these are two excellent examples of novels that are kind of addressing current social issues around race. Are you seeing people purchasing books like that here? Uh, yes, yes, we've, um, you know, there, obviously there are several, um, nonfiction cast is, is on the bestseller list and we've sold, mm-hmm. sold that quite a bit. Um, not so much right now. There was a, you know, um, mm-hmm. there's a couple of months where the sort of whole Black Lives Matter movement was more in the, in the, um, in the uh, news and, and so you know right. books book sales are, are, are very um you know they, they they come and go very very fast with uh um right. but yes yeah. yes we have and it's really good to see oh, um also a bunch of 
uh, young adult uh, novels as well, which which mm-hmm. I hadn't really yeah. really seen before, which is which is really good to see. Um, so yes, yep, absolutely. That's- it's great. Yeah. So my last two books are palate cleansers. So this, this will, I'll go through them quickly. So the first one is called the wife stalker and it's by Liv Constantine and um, Liv Constantine is actually two people. So she's two sisters who write together under this pseudonym and it's kind of a complicated plot. So the, um, it takes place in Westport, Connecticut, which is a very upscale Eastern town. And um, it tells the story. It starts out with uh, the setting of this family. The father, it, Leo, is kind of, they have two kids. He's kind of gone into this depressive funk and his wife recommends that he go to this new age center, which has opened up in their town. And he does, and he meets the owner and subsequently the owner whose name is Piper. She kind of starts infiltrating their lives and, and suspense ensues. And so it's just, this book completely threw me for a loop. There is a twist at the end I didn't see it coming, never saw it coming. I had to actually go back and read it again to make sure (laughs) I I was, did this really happen? I loved it. Couldn't put it down. You loved the ending to a book. (laughs) I did. I loved it. I, I, I would even go back and read it again. It was so good. It was really great. So yay. You know, if you're looking for an escape, check out the the wife stalker for sure. And then my last book is called The Guest List by Lucy Foley. I think I might have talked about this on the podcast earlier. This was on a lot of bestseller lists, a lot of celebrity book clubs had this book on it. Um it is um written in the style of Agatha Christie, you know, a group of people come together, they're on a remote island. And, oh, my goodness, there's a murder. So who did it? Um, everybody's a suspect. Um, there are a ton of characters. Okay, this is, there are is a huge list of what you would consider, quote, unquote, main characters in this book. And every chapter bounces, not only in time, but in narrator. So this, this is a book you cannot pick up and put down. You I mean, I couldn't anyways, or I couldn't manage who was talking. Um, But it's pretty cagey regarding, you know, who, not only who did it, but who the dead person is. Um, So you don't, you find out that somebody's been murdered pretty early on, but then you don't even know who it is until the end. And when the ending comes, it all wraps up super quick. But another really fun, engaging read, my middle daughter, who's 22, also read it and loved it. Um, so it's it's just a really fun book. And I think um, it's been optioned for a, a, a movie. Sounds like it would be. So, yeah. Well, you know, it's on Reese Witherspoon's. It was one of her picks uh, okay. for her book club. So you think, okay. And all I could think of when I was reading it is who, which character is she going to play? You know, I, I just, 
I couldn't figure out who, who she was going to play, but so those are my five books and great. Um, it was a great year for books. I have to say. Certainly was. And we'll remind our listeners, we're going to list all of these books on our, um, podcast page, oxygenstartpodcast.com, as well as in our Instagram post. So you don't feel like you have to write these down, especially if you're driving. Yeah. Um, Stay safe. Yes. (laughs) So next up, Dave. Dave. What are you reading? What are your top picks, Dave? All right. Well, those are fantastic choices, Stacey. Um, And I will, I definitely want to read that. Um, that What was the name of the Fremont one again? Uh, it is called uh, Imperfect Union, How John and Jesse Fremont Mapped the West, Invented Celebrity, and Helped Cause the Civil War. And um, that's by imper- Stevens. Perfect. Um, Imperfect Union. Yeah. I will, I will read that. Definitely. Okay. So um, my choices, and I agree it was a great, great year for, for books. Um, hard to pick five, um, five favorites out of them. Um, so my, f- my first one is the splendid and the vile by Eric Larson. And I know, oh, Chris, ha- we have love you read him. that Stacey? Yeah. Okay. Have you read him? That's one? I haven't read that one yet. Okay. I, I read this year. I read the beasts, the book about the beasts. Oh, in the garden of beasts. Yeah. That was a good yes. one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I, I like all of his books. He's, he's one of those authors that I, I read everything that he, he publishes. Um, he's such mm-hmm. a great, great storyteller. Um, and he's, he's really good at making history accessible and compelling. Um, and this one is, is no exception. It's, it's, I, I enjoyed it right. a lot. So, um, it's the story of Winston Churchill's first year as prime minister. So it spans the period from May 1940 to May 1941. Um, the period known as Britain's darkest and finest hour, at least to to us Brits. I don't know if it <laughs> if it's known to anyone else as <laughs> a, 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 a finest hour. Um, so, uh, and it it was probably the period that established Churchill's legacy as a sort of unbending bulldog, um, more right. than anything. Um, so, uh, Europe had just been steamrolled by Hitler. Uh, the States was not, had not joined the war. Um, and you know, it wasn't guaranteed that they would, um, you know, Roosevelt, it was an election year and it was, it was deeply unpopular here to, you know, they, um, right. uh, you guys mm-hmm. did not want to, want to join. Um, and Russia was, oh, Soviet Union, I, I guess, was not on the side of the allies. So, Britain kind of stood alone, um, and there, you know, there have been many, many books written about the Second World War, and particularly about Churchill. Uh, so it's really difficult to write something new and interesting and engaging. But um, I think uh, Eric Larson has with this one, and he's very, he's he's an expert at finding sort of the, the good stuff that you might find in footnotes of other conventional Mm -hmm. historical accounts. Um, Mm -hmm. And it creates this immersive historical experience um, and, you know, makes you feel like you've lived through it in some ways. Um, And even though we all know how it ends, um, it's it's (laughs) a hard, hard book to put down. Um, 
you know, the subject so matter is incredible. In, Sorry, go ahead. Dave, in this in this book, does he like parallel Churchill's story with another topic? Like in in the Garden of Beasts, he kind of share goes through you know, Hitler's situation versus Dodd, the ambassador from the U.S. situation. Have, and, you know, he has multiple view viewpoints, uh, although Churchill is kind of the main focus. Um, he, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and there's a lot of really dramatic events, but he uses a lot of firsthand um, uh, material. You know, everyone wrote diaries and mm -hmm. wrote letters you know, unlike today, right. uh, and he uses a lot of that, and um, you know, it, it sort of centers mostly on um, Churchill's sort of close family and uh, people close to him, um, and there's some really interesting ones, particularly his daughter Mary, who's this sort of 17-year-old sort of little uh, socialite, <laughs> um, is, is is really <laughs> interesting, um, and. Um, uh, so he, he, he and the, there was this thing called the mass observation program where people would just write down their observations of everyday life. Um, and it wasn't supposed to be f for the war. It started before that. But he uses a lot of those to, to kind of highlight um, just ordinary people's experiences during during the Blitz. Um, so, yeah, it's it's it's, it's really good. He, um, you know, he conveys that sort of terror and the horror of the of the blitz um through these sort of little de details the smells the sounds the you know the choking volume of dust and um you know it was, it was a terrifying time there, you know there was 57 consecutive nights of bombing um you know imagine 57 911s in a row um it was yeah. it was you know um ter my, and my mother actually lived through it she she was in london at the time so um, wow. I, I have that. Yeah, it really rings personal. Yes, yes. That sort of, it, it was really interesting for me to, to kind of read about it because, you know, she told me about it and she, she did not enjoy the, the, the war very much. Um, no. So, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's, um, it's not just the sort of major events and the, the sort of epic speeches, you know, fight them on the beaches and all that. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a very interesting um, uh, book about, you know, ordinary people as well. And, and Churchill, Churchill is like such an interesting man. He's, you know, it's this vivid portrait mm -hmm. of, of this brilliant, charismatic, intense, um, and very bizarre person. Um, you know, he was, he was drunk all the time, basically. And, um, you know, he's, he's, he started drinking pretty early in the, in the day. Um, he took a lot of these long baths and, um, would frequently conduct government business from his bath. Um, and, you know, and people would visit him while he was in his bath. <laughs> he was a really, uh, really interesting person, but, you know, just, you know, the perfect, perfect man for the, for the time, you know, he was, um, yeah. But, um, what did you think, I thought it was a brilliant book. And, and as you said earlier, Larson is excellent at pacing nonfiction. This is mm -hmm. classic narrative nonfiction that is a page turner. And it's not very long. Um, and I think you hit it right on the head there, Dave. He really captures a caricatureful portrait of Churchill that is even unique 
to those dozens and dozens and dozens of biographies written about the man. So I also second that as a topic. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, it's on my list for 2021 for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, What's up next? Next. Okay. The next one is The City We Became. Uh, this is a, I guess you'd call it fantasy. It's um, it's by N.K. Jemison, um, who is you know, perhaps the um, premier fantasy writer of, of her generation, this generation. Um, the last thing she did was this uh, phenomenally successful Broken Earth trilogy, um, all three of which won the Hugo Award for the best sci- sci-fi fantasy, um, which right. I don't think has ever been done before. Um, and so it's this one's a bit of a departure from some of her previous like world-building series. It's a standalone, um, and it's set in modern-day New York uh, rather than some novel fantasy world. Um, mm-hmm. And so something very strange is going on below the surface. So a bit like um, Neil Gaiman. I think fans of Neil Gaiman will, will like this quite a bit. Um, right. although it's probably not as whimsical as, as, as uh, Neil Gaiman, a bit more horrific. Um, so the basic premise is that cities become um, living, sentient organisms when they reach a certain point in their evolution, and they choose a human champion to embody them. So the book's not only set in New York, but it's, it's also an actual character in the, in the book. Um, and oh, so wow. when, when New York is born, um, in, in, in commas, um, it manifests into, um, five separate avatars for Manhattan, Brooklyn, the Bronx, Queens, Staten Island. Um, and, um, they all have, you know, they're very, very different because they, they embody the, the sort of heart of the, the different, um, bor- boroughs, um, but there is an enemy lurking, ready to devour this newborn city. And the city's avatars don't have a lot of time to figure out who they are, what the enemy is, and how to stop it. Um, so the city, this newborn city, is under attack from this supernatural interdimensional enemy that manifests itself as a series of sort of Lovecraftian monsters um, and as a white woman who's dressed all in white and named Dr. White. <laughs> it's not, it's not super subtle. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, and then four of the five avatar champions are people of color that represent the hearts of the five boroughs. And so they need to figure out how to overcome their differences and join together to overcome this interdimensional enemy. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, obviously a, a commentary on racism, um, specifically of Lovecraft's um, overt racism, because um, he was he was pretty racist. Um, it's also a right. clever re- reversal of um, his beliefs. So the villains of the establishment: white supremacy, police brutality, gentrification, and so on. And the heroes are everyday New Yorkers of disparate backgrounds. Um, who have to overcome their differences, um, and but it's it, you know it sounds I make it sound like it's this sort of heavy-handed, overly preachy allegory, but it's it's not really. You could just read it as a 
um, you know, it's, it's, it's a page turner, um, you know, there's a series of very fast paced encounters. Um, did you, did you read it, Christopher? No, but you know, it's on my list because of the New York. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it is also on many top lists of the year. I think it is on just, I think it has appeared just on yesterday on NPR's top picks of the year as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I think you would probably enjoy it more because it's so site specific to New York. Really? Um, mm -hmm. But you could, you know, it's her um, love letter to New York. She, that's what she called it. This is her um, celebration oh, awesome. of, of sort of diversity of New York and um, sort of the immigrant um, influx and, and what it adds to the, to, um, to, to the city and, and to culture in general. It's, um, I, I think you could really? enjoy it if you didn't enjoy that kind of thing, but mm -hmm. I'm not the per best person to say that because I do like it. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Um, everyone can enjoy it. Uh, if they're like me. Um, okay. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. should I move on? Yep. So move on. How, uh, how am I doing for time? You're doing great. All right. Okay. So the next one, this one is called uh, world of wonders in praise of fireflies, whale sharks, and other astonishments by Amy Nezuka Matatil. Um, Say that <laughs> you wouldn't want to be drunk. To I, I, I had to, I had to look up how to pronounce this because <laughs> I, I had not heard of her. Um, but um, she's and she's a poet. Uh, this is her first um, book of essays. It's part memoir, part um, nature book. Um, each chapter is devoted to a different natural wonder, uh, from peacocks to axolotls to dancing frogs. And even corpse flowers. Each one features oh, a. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's not just animals. There's plants too. Um, and each chapter is is quite short. Sometimes only about five pages. And it features this gorgeous illustration by Fumi Nakamura. Um, and it's a really beautiful book. If you look at it, it's just like one of these old style um, nature books with with um, great illustrations. Um, so, um, each of the natural wonders is linked to an aspect or time in her life. Um, and the natural world provides a colorful cast of characters, which she identifies with for different reasons. The axolotl teaches us to smile through adversity. Um, the narwhal, how to survive in a hostile environment, um, and so on. This is it, the whole, there's, I don't know, 20, 25 different chapters, but they're all really short. Um, and as a child, she moved around a lot. And her parents were immigrants from uh, the Philippines and uh, India. Um, so a lot of it is kind of her displacement and being the only brown face in, in her class and um, she always turns to nature to, to kind of explain um, life and, and um, as a, you know, that's, that's her fallback. She, um, and it's, it's really humorous and charming. And, and her, her writing is, is really, really um, evocative. And um, I, I liked it a lot. Um, How did you um, come across this book, Dave? 
Um, well, it's uh, it was something I just ordered. It's, it was right in the store. <laughs> it's um, <laughs> it was right in front of me. It um, reminds me of <laughs> it reminds me of like Robert McFarlane or other nature writers who are very lyrical or, or poets on the side kind of thing. I'm really yes. anxious to read it. Yes, and we have we have a bunch of his uh, books in recently. It's it's maybe a little more. Um, kind of uh, uh humorous some of the some of the mm. some of the passages in it are really really quite funny um you know and her instinct is always towards right. joy and amazement and um you know it's it it's not um uh it's not a downer in any way i think it would make a really good christmas gift um it's one you could put just by your bedside and you know pick up chapters here and there. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, I think I think you'd like it a lot. Um okay, so next one is Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell. And Ooh, I, I can't one. wait to read this. <laughs> uh yeah, I, I think you like I, I I think you picked another one before that was one of those rock like um uh, a, a fictional rock band or something. I, yes. But I, yeah. I, Daisy yeah, Jones and the Six. That's right. <laughs> yes. And yeah. it's, it's sort of like that. And it's, you know, it's, um, I really, really like David Mitchell. I, I, he's another one of the authors that I read everything that he puts out. Um, uh, his, his style of writing is, is, it's just really easy to read. Um, this is his eighth novel and it's the story of the rise of this eponymous sixties fictional British band. And he calls it the most curious band you've never heard of. Um, and <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah, the most curious podcast you've never heard of. Um, story, so the story <laughs> begins. That could be the tagline for your um, <laughs> yeah, oxygen stuff. Um, the story begins in 67 London. And um, Mitchell convincingly conveys the spirit and the energy of this of that time. Um, and he litters the story with real life celebrities like Leonard Cohen, David Bowie, the Beatles, Stones. Um, you get the picture or all those, uh, anyone that you would imagine to be in the, in the sort of rock scene or a pop scene. Um, but the story centers on struggling musicians who will become the band Utopia Avenue and their rise to success and fame. Um, there, the each of them is re- really. I, I think probably don't need me to name all the pe- the people in it, but um, the novel is presented as a, it's a series of albums, uh, which are composed of songs devoted to and written by one of the members of the band, and whole songs are reproduced. Um, I thought they were it was quite believable. You know, they're they're simultaneously trite and sincere like most of the best mm-hmm. pop, pop songs. Um, and so it seems, it seems more conventional than some of his books. So, some of them, some of them go way, way, way out there. Um, but um, it's, so it's initially fairly straightforward um, kind of take on, on a sort of mock um, realistic um, mock rock biography um, and at one point, at a certain point, he just veers off into this extraordinary 
imagined world that he has, um, but not quite as much as some is of his it, other. Is it, is it told from, for like, you know, from like a humorous, ironic, tongue-in-cheek perspective, or is it pretty, you know, like a, like a spinal tap kind of thing, or is, no. it, is it more straightforward? It's it's more straightforward. It's it's not a it's not a spinal tap kind of kind of kind of deal, um, and you know he he has these trademark conventions in all his books. They're self-referential, so you'll recognize if fans of David Mitchell will recognize several characters or descendants of characters from his other novels. Um, but it, it can be read as you know like a chapter in his a meta novel, but it can also be read independently. Oh. Um, and you said, you certainly don't need yeah. to have read right. any of his other novels. Um, it just sort of, yeah. you know, it's like a fan fan thing that he sticks in for people who've read all his other stuff. Um, but yeah, yes, I'm coming really... in this weekend to buy it. <laughs> all right. All right. Good. We have it. Um, and okay. So last one is called The Doors of Eden by Adrian Tchaikovsky. And I picked it, I picked up one of his books last year as well. Um, and I got such yeah, a good did. response from, from you, Christopher, for his name, uh, Tchaikovsky. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, I'd, so I, th- I would pick it again, uh, another one by him. Um, so uh, in The Doors of Eden, he, uh, Tchaikovsky, uh, takes the evolutionary world building of the children of time geology, which is the second one of those I picked last last year, and applies it to all the what ifs of Earth's of the Earth's past. So, um, and he's fascinated by this idea of deep time, of the millions of years of life before humans came along. Um, at the same time. This is um, the Doors of Eden is set in the here and now, um, even though there are more than one here and nows. So he explores this many worlds theory um, that on a series of parallel Earths, uh, life has experienced very different evolutions. Um, it's it's quite a thick book. <laughs> so you know if if you like this yeah. kind of thing, that's what what you're looking for. You want something that's really you know convoluted and 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 um meaty um and it begins on a small scale with two young cryptid hunters you know the um sort of unexplained animals like the the Loch Ness monster so they they're hunting for this sort of mysterious bird man on Bodmin Bodmin Moor um and then things quickly escalate and go <laughs> go south um and the <laughs> narrative <laughs> what's that sorry I said hijinks ensue. Um, oh, hijinks ensue. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> the, and it expands to this epic journey um, from, you know, um, to this existential crisis of, on all parallel Earths. Um, so he imagines that the barrier between alternate rea- alternative realities and parallel Earths is very thin and cracks are appearing, which allow creatures from other tr- others parallel earth to travel to this one and vice versa. Um, and he always, he always features these really unusual and memorable sentient non-human life forms. Um, and like this one has the enhanced super intelligence steampunk 
weasel rats um, and, um, you know, peaceful <laughs> but brilliant Neanderthals, um, enormous spacefaring trilobites. Um, and, uh, awesome. yeah, it's, 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 it's really weird and wonderful worlds, you know, peopled by outlandish creatures. Um, and I think, if, you know, if, if you like that kind of thing, you will really like it. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> not sure it's for someone who doesn't doesn't buy into that whole idea. Um, but um, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about fantasy and space opera and all this other kind of stuff is is it really is escapist. Yes, <laughs> you know, with these yes. characters. Yeah, and I, I I read quite a lot of. I've been reading a lot more. Um, fantasy and sci-fi is as a as an escape as well i like you know it's right it's nice to just completely lose yourself in um something that's that's kind of ridiculous if you stop and think about it but um it's very entertaining <laughs> uh, yes it is entertaining and it, it helps you mentally get through stuff that's why these hallmark christmas movies are making such a big splash in 2020 mindless entertainment that takes you out of yourself Right. Although I would say it's not completely mindless. This um, this this one kind of makes <laughs> makes makes you think. I don't, I don't want to say that I'm reading completely okay. mindless stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't want to insinuate that either. Um, no, but uh, uh, clearly it's not. I didn't mean to imply that this was the Hallmark Christmas movie of. of <laughs> I'm I'm extremely offended, Christopher. But <laughs> you have to uh, ask me very nicely to come back next year. <laughs> Dave, those are five really great picks. Good job. Well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, are you gonna go ahead now? It's your turn. <laughs> I, I, I do have to go. Okay, mine are rather different than both of yours, but they also kind of, you know, as per both of you, they reflect my own reading tastes as well. So the first one I'm gonna talk about is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Uh, this is historical fiction. It came out in the summer. It is based on some degree of fact, as good historical fiction is. This is a book we know the ending to the story already. We know the history it's based on. But it still has moments of exquisite writing that will take your breath away. And in a way, it's good we know the story already because it allows Maggie O'Farrell, who is a really um, great writer, to catch the threads of well-worn rugs and pull on them, unraveling and reweaving the narrative from an entirely different point of view, which is what's so wonderful to read about historical fiction. It's one of the things I like about it. So here's the history behind this story. Shakespeare and Anne Hathaway marry. Um, they have two children, and he leaves Anne to raise them in Stratford while he goes to make his career in London. And he rarely comes home once he's in London. He's in there writing plays and sending money back home to support his family. They have two children. Their youngest, Hamnet, dies at age 11, his son. Many believe this influenced his play Hamlet that came out a few years later. Hamnet and Hamlet were almost interchangeable names in this period, apparently, according to the author. This was also an era of plague. So those are the historical facts that mm -hmm. uh, kind of structure the story. And here's the author's take. It, she writes it from the perspective of Anne. Shakespeare himself is a is present and is a character in this book, but he is never named, um, which I think was a, a interesting device that she uses so that his personality doesn't overshadow 
Anne's, um, just in the writing. She paints the portrait of Anne living in a claustrophobic life with her husband's in-laws, you know, her in-laws. Um, she lives with her husband's family, even though he's off in London. Um, after having grown up kind of more freewheeling on a farm and having learned to treat ailments, you know, with herbs and, you know, bark and all those kind of things that people did back then, a plague comes to town. First, it threatens to take her daughter, but it takes her son instead. I'm not giving anything away here because the story really takes off from this point. And it's a compelling novel about family, about loss, about estrangement, and the pressures on a marriage when you lose a child, frankly, which is unimaginable. It's, again, well-researched mm-hmm. historical fiction. The writing is brilliantly paced. And I've said this before about this book. There are a few moments in this book where O'Farrell reaches in and grabs you by the heart and only slowly lets go. It is a remarkable, remarkable book. It got the Woman's Prize for Fiction this year, and it's hit a number of best of lists, including the New York Times and NPR picks that were released um, just this first week of December. So, um, and I think I've talked about it before on the podcast. It's, it's, it's really good. Yeah, and it um y- it made a lot of the you know like I think you said the bestseller you know best mm-hmm. top lists and yeah. really compelling novel about the the loss of a child and yeah. how people yeah. dealt with it. Yep. Um, so that was my downer book. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you me downer there. Uh, the next book that I'll recommend is also a novel. Um, this is called The Night Watchman. It's another bestseller from National Book Award winner Louise Erdrich, who many of you will know. And it was also a top pick of the year in many of these lists, including Washington Post and Amazon and Chicago Public Library. She bases this story on the true story of her grandfather, who in the 1950s was a security guard. He was a night watchman. Um, and he was a member of their tribe and argued before Congress the defense of the Native American treaty that guaranteed their tribal lands. And in a very creative and thought-provoking way, she illuminates a whole period of history that I never understood happened until very recently. So, you know, as I was reading this, I kept thinking, how many of us outside of tribes, at least in my generation, were aware that in that period there was a concerted effort to disenfranchise Native Americans from their rights and land so that the land could be taken over and and the use dictated by the descendants of settlers who, quote unquote, knew better. And this opened up mining, it opened up, you know, deforestation, infrastructure tr- projects that didn't necessarily benefit the tribes themselves whose land was taken. This was also a time that tribal defense had to be a, a very delicate dance of language and intellect because many states didn't even allow tribe members to vote, much less recognize them as full citizens. A lot of people would be surprised. It wasn't until the 1965's Voting Rights Act that put many tribes on a closer footing to equal. Um, and if you just pick up any newspaper or turn on the news today, um, the issue you can tell is still not resolved. Her book, her novel, is very characterful and approachable. It helps illuminate this issue in a beautiful way. She has a great cast of characters that are creative, they're funny, sometimes they're not even human. There's a little bit of magical (laughs) realism here. And her her chapters are short, so you actually find yourself reading through the book more quickly than you might imagine. Um, And, you know, when I closed the book, aside from the larger social issue, I also thought it was just a compellingly written tale that 
in a way reminded me of that classic Jimmy Stewart film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, yeah. You know, the kind of powerless small town person who goes and takes on Congress. Um, this is, mm-hmm. this is a version of that kind of story and a very compelling one. So a great addition to, um, Louise's Erdrich's output. Fun. Sounds like a good read. It is a good read. So the next book that I'll pick, I've talked about before, I think as well is called eat a peach by David Chang. This is a memoir. Uh, if you want to understand how crazy you have to be to become a Michelin-starred chef who turns a <laughs> hole in the wall into a worldwide sensation, um, you can get inside the mind of just one set chef with David Chang's book about his path toward and from Momofuku Noodle Bar. He's artistic, he's fearless, he's relentless, and ultimately has to learn to understand humanity and humility. Many of you will recognize David Chang for his appearances on Netflix's Ugly Delicious. And he also just made the news recently by winning a million dollars on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and donating it all to a charity that supports restaurant workers during the pandemic. You stole what I was going to say. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you would agree those days. The dude's a mensch. She's oh, he's, he's, he's a good guy. He is a really, really good guy. And, um, you know, you mentioned uh, the characteristic of how he developed humility. I mean, he's so humble for a chef, you know, chefs are not typically humble people and I find him to be so humble. And you discussed this book when we were covering memoirs Mm -hmm. and, um, it's, it's on, it's on my list to read too. I just, I love him. Um, he, he's also done some stuff with, um, John Favreau, there's a, he has a a chef show or some kind of cooking show. I've seen a couple episodes. Um, I think it's on Netflix and he's just such a good guy, David Chang. And he he is a good guy. And what's interesting about this book is that he doesn't necessarily start out that way. You know, he, he admits his own faults. Um, he's very self-reflective. He's candid. Mm -hmm. he kind of paints his trajectory from, where he started and where he thought he would go to, where he actually ended up. Um, mm-hmm. You're right. You don't become a Michelin-starred chef by being everyone's best friend. Um, right. But, you know, he kind of shows that, you know, the work is – he's funny and shows that the work benefits from taking risks. Um, mm-hmm. And it also – you know, it's just a quick and interesting read, but it also opens the door to kind of examining what goes on behind the doors in these right. high-pressure restaurants. So that's Eat a Peach by David Chang. Yep. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> Me too. So my, my, uh, excellent. Awesome. If I get three people local to read this book, I get a prize. Um, <laughs> you, you get a gift certificate to Momofuku. <laughs> I would love that. You know, I lived in New York all those years and, and Momofuku was like on everyone's radar and I never made it over there, which was, <sighs> I, I think he has a, re- I think he has restaurants in LA now too. Yeah. But we, LA we, doesn't count. Oh, come on. <laughs> You New Yorker. I know. So my next pick is uh, Back to Fiction World, Historical Fiction. This is Mirror and the Light by Hilary Mantel. Many of you will recognize this book. It closes out the Thomas Cromwell Mm -hmm. trilogy begun with Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, both of which won the Booker Prize when they came out. Wolf Hall was adapted into a successful TV series starring Mark Rylance. Mirror and the Light just um, 
bookends the the story right up to his execution by the king he served, um, Henry VIII. It's thoroughly researched, compellingly written. I won't go into the details, but a couple of points I'll make that probably indicate why this whole trilogy, in fact, was so popular. No matter what you think of Thomas Cromwell, he was a ruthless and controversial figure. He was also one of the only self-made men of his age. Um, No one at this period could be born the son of a butcher and expect to become the second most powerful person in the Mm -hmm. country. Today, we take that for granted. But back in those days, you kind of had to be part of nobility or royalty or something to be in control. So he was controversial for that reason. And she extracts that as a theme throughout all of these books. The other thing is that politics is both timeless and universal. (laughs) The plot threads and machinations of this trilogy could have been lifted from any major news outlet today, regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum or what news outlet you watch when you turn on the TV. Um, the the parallels are there in this book. And I always find that fascinating. The novel is introspective. It's paced. It's amazing right to the end. I personally don't think it's as good as the first two, but it's enormously satisfying nonetheless. And again, this one hit, you know, it was nominated for the booker. It didn't win, but it was a top pick of the year by New York times, Washington post time magazine, NPR, the guardian, you know, on and on and on and on. So Christopher, do you have to read the other two to be able to pick this one up? Or, you know, is it better if you have that context? Well, you know, I think if you're not very familiar with the era or who Thomas Cromwell was, you benefit from reading the other two. Mm-hmm. I kind of like reading bios of Churchill when we talked earlier, you know, right. you can read a slice of a person's life. And so you can you can pick this one up and mm-hmm. read it. Um, but you kind of miss the the story setting that comes from the first right. two and the drama that gets resolved. Did people buy this at the bookstore this year, Dave? Um, not very much. Um, and I agree with you. I, I really like this, this trilogy. Um, but I've, you know, I, I, I've heard feedback from people who just sort of didn't, didn't get who was, who is mm-hmm. addressing them at different points. Um, but, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I really liked it personally. Um, but it hasn't yeah. been a, a massive seller for us. Yeah. So, but we do have all three, if anyone would like to, uh, purchase them. <laughs> <laughs> Make a perfect Christmas. There you go. Exactly. Um, so my, my final pick of the year, which I'm sure people have been buying from you is, uh, Local, Miracle Country by Kendra Atlee Work. We had the pleasure of interviewing Kendra back in June, so I won't go into too much detail about this debut memoir. And in fact, many of our Eastern Sierra listeners will have seen or read this book already. It's currently, as we're recording this, a book club pick for the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association's December Book Club. I will restate my earlier comment that this book, which is an intimate family memoir and a memoir of place at the same time, a memoir of the Eastern Sierra with elements of history and nature writing, this book will become part of the canon of this area, sitting easily alongside Mary Austin's Land of Little Rain and other books. Many locals will recognize Kendra by her writing in the local press or just by knowing her and her family. Mm -hmm. But I'm not just cheering on our own here. This is a book that's getting broad, positive attention, including starred reviews from two major book review publications for libraries and booksellers that Dave will recognize, Library Journal and Publishers Weekly. For a first-time memoir, that's pretty incredible. 
Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it is getting good. a lot of buzz. Yeah, it's and it's probably this one is probably our biggest selling book this year. Wow, that's yeah, great. I, it's, I really think, yeah, I, it's just it's if you want to know anything about the Eastern Sierra, this is a good book to read. Yes, it is I, fun I, I to read. You know, for all of us that that live here. Um, even if we, you don't know the Atlee work family, it's, it is really fun to read a book and about places that you recognize and you know exactly where she's talking about. It's, that makes it really fun too. Entirely. So again, a compelling memoir, um, highly recommend it. And I think, you know, between the three of us, we've listed 15 really great books to choose from for top picks of, of 2020, right? Yep. And books from all different genres, they'll fit anybody's taste. Yes. And if, if, if anyone's looking for them, we, I, I, I will, I know you were just kind of joking at the start, but I, I will put out a, um, <laughs> put them all together on, on a, sh- on a shelf. So we'll be at able to have joint at the bookie joint. Um, and uh, we'll have a little, a little bit. If you want to come in and do a, a little blurb for them, you're welcome to as well. Awesome. So, Great. listeners, you heard it right from Dave himself. Uh, Bookie joints in the Minaret Mall in Mammoth Lakes, California. Highly recommend. It's great. I, I echo Stacy's comment. It's one of my favorite stores in the county. Um, go by, say hello to Dave. Um, thank you for joining us for another episode of Oxygen Starved Podcast. If you can't find these books uh, in your local, you can always find these books in your local libraries and through your local booksellers, but we do encourage you to um, shop local, especially this year, if you have indie booksellers around you. Um, Find these books listed on our website, oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. We will list them on our Instagram account when this episode goes live. And yeah, thank you for joining us in 2020. It's been an interesting year, hasn't it, (laughs) Stacey? Yeah, that's, you said a mouthful there. (laughs) Dave, thank you for joining us again. Thanks, Dave. Thank you so much, uh, Christopher and Stacey, and be well. Be well yourself. Be well, listeners. Happy 2021. Happy holidays. Be safe. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.